0: You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa radio reading information service for the blind and print disabled. Welcome to today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 14th, 2024. I'm Lainey Errol from Drake University. Here's our first story. So our first story is called School Pronoun Bill Prompts Opposition. This article is by Robin Opsal and is from the Iowa Capitol Dispatch. The lead or the subheading, I guess I should say, reads, Opponents say proposal violates parents' rights. Alright, let's get into the story. Republican lawmakers on an Iowa House panel advanced legislation Monday that opponents said would allow school employees to ignore a parent's request that their child be allowed to use a different name or pronouns than they were assigned at birth. Students, parents, and education advocates said the bill, which would prohibit disciplinary action against school staff and students who do not use a person's preferred name and pronoun, would violate the parental rights in parentheses, law signed last session. Lawmakers heard Monday from lobbyists and members of the public at the subcommittee meeting for the House File 2139. The bill would forbid school districts and charter schools from giving, in parentheses, verbal or written reprimands, in parentheses, to people who use a student's or school employee's legal name instead of their preferred name, or for not using their preferred pronouns. The bill also bars stricter disciplinary measures for students, such as suspicion or expulsion, and for students, school staff and contractors such as termination of employment, demotion, or financial penalties. Matthew McIver, who has a transgender child, was among opponents who said this law directly contradicts Senate File 496, a law signed by Governor Kim Reynolds in 2023. The law, part of which are currently being challenged in court, requires school districts to notify parents and seek permission if their child requests using a different name or pronouns than they were assigned at birth. MacIver said this bill would allow schools to override parents' wishes for their child's preferred name and pronouns to be used and respected. This bill this is a quote by the way this bill is a direct bill is a direct abrogation of parents' rights, McIver said. If I have already identified for the district the preferred name and gender and pronouns of my child saying that there are no consequences to a teacher not using what i clear have clearly communicated to the school district per the existing law strips me of my rights as a parent for determining what is best for my child tim stevens a 14 year old student said he has family and friends who would be harmed by legislation as it would allow them to be targeted at school with no repercussions there is no reason to allow our teachers to bully and belittle children, Stevens said. If you vote to pass this bill, it show, it shows you're willing to enable harassment at Iowa schools for the singular for the single reason of targeting minorities. It's time we move past this and focus on actual issues that need actual solutions. Ryan Benn, with the family leader, said the measure was necessary to protect teachers. Of faith, in parentheses, and that parents' rights in regard to their children's education do not override teachers' rights to uphold their personal religious beliefs by not using a transgender child's preferred name and pronouns. And then there's a photo. Um, the caption of the photo reads Demonstrators at the Iowa Capitol protest a bill in the Iowa House that would remove gender identity protections from the state civil rights acts. And then there is an individual holding up a cardboard sign that says trans people belong in Iowa um, standing in the state capitol. Okay, our next article is called Hearing Debates Truth versus Assault on Trans Islands. This story is by Tom Barton and is from the Lee Gazette Des Moines Bureau. Chanting again filled and echoed in the halls Monday of the Iowa Capitol for a third straight week as transgender Iowans and civil rights and LGBTQ advocates decried a bill that would define in parentheses man and women in state law, as well as require changes to birth certificates and government collection of data. House lawmakers held a public hearing Monday evening on Governor Kim Reynolds' proposal to change how the state addresses sex and gender identity. Reynolds' bill would define, in parentheses, man and women based on a person's sex at birth. House File 2389 was amended and advanced last week by Republicans on the House Education Committee. They removed the part of the bill that would have required transgender Iowans to include their sex assigned at birth on their driver's license. Sex change information would still be required on birth certificates. Transgender Iowans called the proposal discriminatory, arguing it would lead to the, in parentheses, erasure of transgender and non-binary people from Iowa Code. House Education Committee Chair Skyler Wheeler, R. Hull, passed the hearing several times to let noise subside from a large crowd of protesters who packed the hallway outside the committee room and chanted, You will not erase us, along with profanity. There's a photo included in this story. The caption reads, People gathered at the state capitol in Des Moines on Monday to protest a bill for Governor Kim Reynolds that opponents called, in, in parentheses, assault on trans islands. And the photo shows a bunch of people holding up signs, um, saying things like, in trans genocide, we will not go back, trans rights don't give up the fight, and other, um, protest signs such as that. The next article is called Mardi Gras Carnival Beads, a Plastic Disaster. This is by Kevin McGill uh, from the Associated Press. New Orleans. It's a beloved century-old carnival season tradition in New Orleans. Masked riders on lavish floats fling strings of colorful beads or other trinkets to parade watchers clamoring with outstretched arms. It's all in good fun, but it's also a bit of a, in parentheses, plastic disaster, says Judith. Ingen, a former Environmental Protection Agency, regional administrator, and president of the advocacy group Beyond Plastics. The city's annual series of parades began more than a week ago and closed out on Tuesday, Mardi Gras, a final day of revelry before Lent. Thousands attend the parades and they leave a mess of trash behind. Despite a massive daily cleanup operation that leaves the post parade landscape remarkably clean, uncaught beads dangle from tree limbs like Spanish moss and get ground into the mud under the feet of passerbyers. They also wash into storm drains where the only complete, where the only complete efforts to keep the food prone city streets dry, the flood prone city streets dry. Tons have been pulled from the Aging drainage system in recent years. And those that aren't removed from the storm drains eventually get washed through the system and into Lake, Lake Pontchartrain, the large Gulf of Mexico inlet north of the city. The non biodegradable plastics are a threat to fish and wildlife and get set. The waste is becoming a defining characteristic of this event, said Brett Davis, a New Orleans native who grew up catching beads at Mardi Gras parades. He now heads a nonprofit that works to reduce the waste. One way of making a dent in the demand for this, for new plastic beads is to reuse old ones. Parade goers who carry home shopping bags of freshly caught beads, foam footballs, rubber balls, and a host of other freshly flown goodies can donate the hall to the Ark of New Orleans. The organization repackages and resells the products to raise money for the services it provides to adults and children with disabilities. The City of New Orleans and the Tourism Promotion Organization New Orleans & Co. also have collection points along parade routes for cans, glass, and yes, beads. Aside from recycling, there's a small but growing movement to find something else for parade riders to love. Grounds Crew Davis's nonprofit is now marketing more than two dozen types of non plastic sustainable items for parade riders to pitch. Among them, headbands made of recycled t shirts, beads made out of paper, acid seeds or recycled glass, wooden yo-yos, and packets of locally made coffee, jamboli mix, and other food items. Useful, consumable items that won't just take up space in someone's attic or worse wind up in a leak. And then there's a photo, and the caption reads, Trash lies the gutter, February 18, 2015, on Bourbon Street in the early hours of the morning after Mardi Gras in New Orleans. The beloved carnival season tradition of flinging strip, strings of colorful beads or other trinkets to parade goers is a bit of a plastic disaster some say. And the photo shows a bunch of trash beads included uh, lining a uh, New Orleans street and there's just a couple people hanging around. The next story is called House Rebukes Majorcas. This is by Lisa Mascor, Rebecca Santia, and Elliot Spangit, and is by the Associate Press. It says, Republicans vote to send impeachment charges to Senate. Now, let's get into it. Washington, the U.S. House voted Tuesday to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas with the Republican- majority determined to punish the biden administration over its handling of the u.s mexico border after failing last week in a politically embarrassing setback the evening roll call proved tight with speaker mike johnson's thread bar, um, gop majority unable to handle many defectors or absences in the face of staunch democratic opposition to impeaching my the first cabinet secretary facing such charges in nearly 50 150 years the house impeached mayor the house impeached Mayorca's 214 to 213 with the return of majority leader steve sackless to bolster the gop's numbers after being away from washington for cancer care and a northeastern storm impacting some others republicans recouped despite distant from their own ranks president joe biden called it a Plantic act of unconstitutional Parisianship that has targeted an honorable public servant in order to play petty political games. The charges against Majorcas next go to the Senate for a trial, but neither Democratic nor Republican senators showed interest in the matter, and it may be indefinitely shelved to a committee. The Senate is expected to receive the articles of impeachment, From the house after returning to session february 26. senate majority leader chuck schumer um, democratic new york party called the case against myorkas a sham impeachment and a new low for house republicans the vote came the same day authorities said arrests for illegal crossings on the u.s border with mexico fell by half in january from record highs in december to the third lowest month of biden's presidency seasonal declines and heightened enforcement by the U.S. and its allies led to the sharp decline, said Troy Miller, acting commissioner of the U.S. Customs and Border Protection. U.S. authorities repeatedly praised Mexico for a crackdown launched in late December. Border patrol arrests totaled 124,220 in January, down 50 percent from 200,049,735 in December. The highest monthly tally on record. Arrest of Venezuelans plunged 91% to 4,422 from 46,920 in December. The January decline may prove tenacious. Still, it's welcome news from the White White House as immigration has become one of the biggest issues in this year's presidential election. Exit polls, polls show It is the top concern among many Republican voters in the early primaries. The next story is titled Israel, Hamas Process Towards Ceasefire Deal. Um, In the subheading reads, South Africa requests court to weigh if Rafi attacks breach orders. And this is by the Associated Press. Israel and Hamas are making progress towards another ceasefire and hostage release deal, officials said Tuesday, as negotiations went on and Israel threatened to expand its offense its uh, offense its offensive to Gaza's southern edge, where some one point four million Palestinians have sought refuge. The talks continued in Egypt a day after Israel forces rescued two captains in Rafi. The packed southern town on the Egyptian border and a raid that killed at least 74 Palestinians, according to local health officials. Israel launched the war after thousands of Hamas led millions, led militants rampaged through southern Israel on October 7th, killing 1,200 people, mostly civilians, and taking roughly 250 people captive. An estimated 100 people are still held captive in Gaza. Qatar, the United States, and Egypt have sought to broker a deal. More than 28,000 people have been killed in the Gaza Strip. South Africa, which lodged genocide allegations against Israel at the International Court of Justice, said Tuesday it filed an urgent request with the court to consider whether Israel's military operations in Rafi constitute a breach of orders to to take greater measures to spare civilizations. The next story is um, called, Will Verdict Reshape Gun Cases? And the, set, the subheading reads, What's Next for Parents of School Shooter in Michigan? It's by Ed White, and it's from the Associated Press. A conviction in the unprecedented trial of a Michigan sh- school shooter's mother will stand as a milestone to law enforcers across the U.S., as well as a stark reminder to parents with guns in their home. But experts who followed Jennifer Crumpling's involuntary manslaughter case note that events related to the Oxford High School attack were extraordinary and might not match other cases where parental blame could be weighed. I'm not a big believer that any one conviction creates some sort of landslide effect, said Detroit area lawyer Margaret Robin, the former leader of a statewide associ- association of defense attorneys. Prosecutors bring charges they think they can prove, she said. The facts are horrible. I don't know Jennifer Crumbly, but it's fair to say a lot of people were alarmed at the way she was parenting this kid or not parenting. What happened? The parents of Ethan Crumbly were summoned to his school on November 30th, 2021, to discuss the 15-year-old's violent drawing on a math assignment with with desperate phrases, The thoughts won't stop. Help me. My life is useless. The school's concern was that he might be suicidal, not that he was a threat to others. His parents declined to take him home and instead said they would look at a list of mental health services. A few hours later, Ethan Crumbly pulled a six sour nine millimeter handgun from his backpack and began firing. No one had checked the bag. He shot eleven people, killing four students. The shooter, now seventeen, pledged guilty and is serving a life sentence. Parents pursued. A jury in Oakland County, Michigan, convicted Jennifer Crumbly, 45, of involuntary manslaughter last week. Prosecutors argued that she was grossly negligent in not securing the gun and had a legal duty to prevent her son from harming others, even if she didn't know his specific plan. James Crumbly took him to a gun shop four days before the attack and bought him the Sig Sauer, which the teen called his beauty. Jennifer Crumbly took him to a gun range the same weekend, buying a hundred rounds of ammunition. Those facts were not shared with school officials during the meeting on the day of the shooting, according to trial testimony. Jennifer Crumbly told jurors it was irrelevant. She said she saw no signs of mental distress and pinned responsibility for gun storage on her husband. The jury forewoman said Jennifer Crumbly wasn't a super reliable witness. She told NBC's Today Show that some jurors were in. Influenced by Ethan Crumbly's journal, in which he lambered his parents' lack of interest in his mental health. Reaction to the verdict Oakland County Sheriff Mike Banchard, whose office investigated the parents, said the jury plowed new ground with this verdict. Every town for gun safety, a national advocacy group that works on policies to reduce gun violence. violence said the verdict shows the oxford shooting could have been prevented especially with proper gun storage the charges in this case were remarkable the number of signs missed and decisions made were just too hard to ignore said nick sublina senior vice president for law and policy lawyers in the case have declined to comment citing a gag order imposed by judge cheryl matthews in illinois in a different case of parental responsibility Robert Crimo Jr. last year pleaded guilty to misdemeanors for sponsoring his 19-year-old son's gun license. He was accused of knowing about Robert Crimo III's suicidal thoughts and threats against others. The son is charged with killing seven people at a 4th of July parade in Highland Park in 2022. The sentence. The maximum penalty for involuntary manslaughter is 15 years in prison. Matthew's job on April 9th, will be to set the minimum term to be served before Jennifer Crumbly is eligible for parole. That minimum could be as high as 10 years," Robin said, adding that the sentences on four convictions would likely be served at the same time and not staffed. As she considers a sentence, the judge undoubtedly will think about Jennifer Crumbly's testimony, in which she expressed no regrets about how she dealt with her son in the school on the day of the shooting. We did lose a lot, she said, summing up the tragedy. The message that's sent to parents, the victims, the jurors, was incredible, said Richard Convertino, a former federal prosecutor who watched the seven-day trial. I think it was misstep after misstep by the defense. He noted that defense attorney Sharon Smith began her opening statement to jurors with an odd reference to a Taylor Swift song about band-aids and bullet holes. In her closing argument, Smith took the unusual tack of referring to her own family to try to deflect an unflattering portrayal of Jennifer Crumpley. It does not mean she loved her son any less if she ever told a witness. My son is weird, Smith said. I sent texts to my husband saying, our daughter is a psycho today. On the way to school last week, she's crying. She doesn't have people to sit with at lunch. I texted him, she's a nutcase. Smith wondered... If she would be responsible if her teen son sent a nude picture of his bits and pieces to a girl on a phone that she owns. Confortino and Jennifer Crumbly's trial defense was a losing proposition from the start and went down from there. Father's trial. James Crumbly, 47, faces his own involuntary manslaughter trial, March 5th. He, too, will be confronted with evidence that he didn't do enough to help his son before the shooting. Jurors will see images of him and Ethan buying the gun. Prosecutors also have a crucial piece of evidence, a call to 911 that implies he quickly figured out his son could be the shooter at Oxford High. I raced home just to like find out and I think my son took the gun. I don't know if it's him. I don't know what's going on. I'm really freaking out. My son's name is Ethan Crumbly, he said on that call. Um, and then there is a photo and the caption reads, Defendant Jennifer Crumbly exits the courtroom February 6th after being found guilty of involuntary manslaughter at the conclusion of her trial at Oakland County Circuit Court in Pontiac, Michigan. Crumbly, the mother of a Michigan school shooter, is the first parent in the US to be found criminally responsible for an attack conducted by their child. And the photo shows um, um, Jennifer Crumbly, Looks like in a courtroom and there's an officer right behind her. The next um, story is called Biden urges lawmakers to pass Ukraine funding. And the subheading reads, Speaker suggest a vote might not happen for months, if at all. And this is by Associated Press. Press. President Joe Biden on Tuesday called for House Republicans to urgently bring a 95.3 billion aid package for Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan to a vote warning that refusal to take up the bill passed by the Senate in the early morning would be playing into, in parentheses, Russian President Vladimir Putin's hands. Supporting this bill is standing up to Putin, um, Biden said from the White House. We can't walk away now. That's what Putin is betting on. But the package faces a deeply uncertain future in the House, where hardline Republicans aligned with former President Donald Trump the vote runner for the GOP presidential nomination and a critic of support of Ukraine, opposed the legislation. Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican, LA, has cast new doubt on the package and made clear that it could be weeks or months before Congress sends the legislation to Biden's desk, if at all. The Senate vote came early Tuesday after a small group of Republicans opposed to the 60 billion, 60 billion dollar for Ukraine held the Senate floor through the night. Yet 22 Republicans voted with nearly all Democrats to pass the package 70 to 29. The next story is called New Orleans Marks Fat Tuesday and the subheading reads annual pre-lentil celebration is the most well-known in the U.S. It's by Kevin McGill and it's from the Associated Press. New Orleans banned a typical joyous goodbye to carnival season, Tuesday with Mardi Gras parades, street parties, and what amounted to a massive outdoor costume festival around the bars and restaurants in the French Quarter. Revelers in capes, wigs, spandex, and feathers danced in front of St. Louis Cathedral at Jackson Square while Latin music blared. Not far away, tourists and locals roared with bourbon and royal streets with... Roamed Bourbon and Royal streets with costumes that varied from the scanty and suggestive to the fanciful. Outside the narrow streets of the quarter, two tradition-rich parades rolled on a route that took them through the city's uptown neighborhood and onto carnival Street in the business district. First came the Zulu Social Aid and Pleasure Club, with marchers and riders in African-inspired garb, handing out the century-old club's signature gift. Hand-decorated coconuts. Later, Rex, king of Carnival, rolled down St. Charles, stopping for a cere- ceremonial toast at a historic downtown building with Mayor Latoya Cantrell. Mardi Gras, or Fat Tuesday, is a secular holiday, but it's tied to Christian and Roman Catholic traditions. It always falls the day before Ash Wednesday and is seen as a final day of feasting and revelry before solemnity of Lent. Monday Night featured the parade of Crew of Oak co-founded by homegrown musician and actor Harry Conwick Jr. In addition to elaborate floats and marching bands, participants included Connick himself, actor Neil Patrick Harris, and Harris's husband, David Bertka. New Orleans has the nation's largest and best-known carnival celebrations. Its replant with cherished traditions beloved by locals, but it's also a vital boost to the city's tourist-driven economy, always evident in the French Quarter. The annual pre-Lenten festivities aren't limited to New Orleans. Similar celebrations are held in Louisiana and along the Gulf Coast. Mobile Alabama, where six parades were scheduled Tuesday, lays claim to the nation's oldest Mardi Gras celebration. Other lavish carnival celebrations in Brazil and Europe are now world-renowned, and there's a photo with this um, story, and the caption reads, A member of the traditional Mardi Gras group, the Tramps, holds a traditional coconut throne Tuesday during the crew of Zulu parade on Mardi Gras Day in New Orleans, and um, it's someone dressed up, looks like in a Superman-type costume, but with a Z instead of an S for um, Zulu, I'm assuming. Um, And there's a bunch of other people wearing feathers, there's cars, looks like just a big parade. Okay, the next article is called Yearly Inflation Cools But Remains Elevated. And this is in the Digest section. Consumer inflation in the United States cooled last month, yet remained elevated. The Labor Department's report Tuesday showed the Consumer Price Index rose 0.3% from December to January, up from a 0.2% increase, the previous month. Compared with a year ago, prices are up 3.1%. That is less than the 3.4 figure in December and far below the 9.1 inflation peak in 2022, but still well above the Federal Reserve's 2% target level as public frustration with inflation is a pivotal issue in President Joe Biden's bid for reelection, Excluding volatile food and energy costs, so-called Core prices climbed 0.4% last month, up from 0.3% in December. Year over year, core prices were up 3.9% in January, the same as in December. You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 14th, 2024 on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped in Des Moines. I'm Lainey Errol from Drake University iris volunteers love to hear from listeners if you have any comments or questions about this or any iris program please feel free to call toll free from anywhere in iowa at 515-243-6833 there are no obituaries for today which is february 14th 2024 the next story is in women's college basketball in the sports section, and it's called Debating Greatness in the subheading reads, Iowa's Caitlin Clark is about to capture the NCAA women's scoring record. But does she need a national title to be considered among the best ever? And the story is by Pete Icobelli from Associated Press. Iowa's Caitlin Clark will soon be the NCAA's all-time scoring leader in women's basketball. That, in many minds, is enough to put the 22-year-old Iowa star among the greats of college basketball. But even after passing Kelsey Plum atop the NCAA's women's list and perhaps Pete Maravich on the men's side, does Clark need a national title to stand um, alongside the likes of Sherelle Miller, Diana Teresa, Maya Moore, and Shar... Charmaque Holdsclaw. I do think she'll be up there, South Carolina coach Don Stanley said. I do. Clark, who's averaging 31.1 points this season, has 3,520 career points and needs eight more to pass Plum's record of 3,527 for Washington from 2013 to 17. The milestone is all but certain to happen Thursday night when Clark and the Hawkeyes host Michigan. Clark also could pass Detroit Mercy's Atone Davis, who has 3,664 points, and perhaps even Maravich, who put up 3,667 points for LSU in three seasons from 1967 to 70. Stanley was National Player of the Year while helping Virginia to three Final Fours from 1989 to 92. But she finished her college career without a title, something she believes should not take away from what Clark has accomplished. The 22-year-old Clark excels in an era when women's game is bursting with growth and new fans in the arenas and on TV, Stanley said. Even the ones who are just starting to see her will be talking about her greatness, Stanley said. And that's something some of the other grades didn't have. Pearl Moore, like Stanley, a member of the Naismith Hall of Fame, remembers too well how few people paid attention to the women's games when she played at Francis Marin in the late 1970s and became the most pro- prolific women's scorer in history. No matter where Clark finishes this season, she's unlikely to catch Moore's mark of 4,061 points from 1975 to 70. Moore's total is not recognized in the NCAA's scoring list because she played in the Association for Intercollegiate Athletics for Women, AIAW. No matter, she said, Clark has brought the game to a bigger stage. It's great to see so many people paying attention, Moore said. Former Notre Dame coach Muflade McCraw, who won two NCAA titles in 2001 and 2018 with the Fighting Irish, believes Clark has established her spot. Whether she and the Hawkeyes with the national tournament or not, the lines of fans, young and old, can be both a joy for Clark to draw from or an added level of pressure for her to live up. The greats, McCraw thinks, have that, have that will to succeed with them. Then, no matter if there are millions, thousands, or dozens watching, she has definitely met the moment. McCraw said, Clark has seemingly kept a rational perspective publicly about chasing a championship. Iowa reached the title game a year ago by beating Stanley's undefeated number one Gamecocks, 77-73, but they were beaten soundly for the championship by LSU, 102-85. Afterward, a visibly upset Clark said she wanted her legacy to be on her young fans and the people of Iowa. I was that young girl, she said. All you have to do is dream, and you can be in moments like this. Um, And then there's a photo um, at the top. the main photo is of Iowa guard Caitlin Clark as she had her hair during February 3rd game against Maryland in College Park. Um, and then there's three other photos. Um, one of Candace Parker, um, who was a basketball player um, in 2007. And then there's another photo of uh, Diana Teresi. Um, and then um, the last photo is of Cheryl Miller. Um, after she won the NCAA Women's Basketball Championship. All right, the next section is called What to Watch Wednesday. Obviously, it's Wednesday, February 14th, 2024. Um, So this kind of just goes through some shows that or movies that are out right now that you guys should check out. So first is Love and Blind. Love is Blind from Netflix. Um, And it says, this reality dating series, which is one of Netflix's consistently highest performing shows worldwide, and now has multi-international spin-offs, returns for a sixth season, more singles looking for love will be choosing someone to marry without ever meeting them. Episodes roll out Wednesdays over four weeks, with the final finale on March 6th. The series has been renewed for season seven. The next one is I Wish for a, I Wish for," an I Dream of Jenny Valentine's Day Marathon, which is on Antenna TV beginning at noon, enjoy nine hours of episodes from the classic 1965 to 70 sitcom I Dream of Jenny, led by Barbara Eden as Jenny and Larry Hagman as May Match. Tony Nelson The Marathon begins with The Lady in the Bottle, the series premiere in which Jenny and Tony meet, and it also includes the season five episode The Wedding, which finds the pair getting married. The next is The Connors, which is on ABC at 7pm. In this new episode, Valentine's Day treats and credit card cheats, Becky wants to introduce Tyler to Beverly, to Beverly Rose, but she is skeptical of Tyler's bombing approach. Then there's Wild Cards, which is on CW at 7pm. In the new episode, The Accountant of Monte Cristo, after an accountant is kidnapped, Ellis gets an urgent call from an old friend to help get him back. And there's nature on PBS at 7 p.m. Sir David Attenborough unearths a once in a lifetime discovery the fossil of a giant Plesiosaur, the largest Jurassic predator ever known. In the episode, Attenborough and the Jurassic sea monster follow a team of forensic experts on a prevalent expedition to evacuate the skull, uncover the secrets li- lying deep within the fossil, and unlock clues about the life of this giant sea beast. Next is Not Done Yet, Not Dead Yet on ABC at 7.30 p.m. After receiving some advice from Cricket, Nell realizes on Valentine's Day that she may be using ghosts as an excuse to not open herself to love in the new episode Not a Valentine Yet. Then there's Nova on PBS at 8 p.m. And the new episode Building the Eiffel Tower, explore the revolutionary engineering behind Paris's iconic landmark, completed in 1889. The Eiffel Tower smashed the record for the tallest structure on Earth, ushering in a new age of global construction that reached for the skies. Then there's Ghost Adventures Screaming Room on the Discovery Channel at 9pm, and this is the season premiere. Um, Zach Bagans and his Ghost Adventures crew are back for season three of their paranormal, paranormal investigation series in which they look back on some of their favorite episodes from past Ghost Adventures seasons and comment on the scariest, funniest, and most exciting moments. Then there's Floyd um, Capote versus the Swans, which is on, um, FX at 9 p.m. In this new episode, It's Impossible, Babe, who is played by Naomi Watts, makes peace with the harsh reality while Truman, Tom Hollander, makes an effort to get sober. Then the last one is Resident Alien, which is on SYFY at 9 p.m., and episodes are available the next day on Peacock as well. Um, and this is the season premiere. In season three of this sci-fi comedy-slash-drama, crash-landed alien Harry is vowing to work with General McAllister to rid Earth of gray aliens, a task made more difficult when he discovers that the gray hybrid Joseph has taken a job in town as the new deputy. Joseph isn't Harry's only obstacle. Harry also struggles to balance business and his personal life when he falls in love for the first time. Okay, the next is... um from a section called Film Clips. And it's about what's playing right now and includes reviews of movies showing in theaters or streaming online. So the first movie is Argyle. Um, For months, one question has plagued moviegoers. Who is the real Agent Argyle? It's a query posed by Samuel L. Jackson in the ubiquitous trailer for Matthew Vaughn's spy action comedy, Argyle. Though there are more pressing questions that the trailer presents like who thought a flat top on Henry Cavanaugh was a good idea? And why are we spelling Argyle with two L's? Alas, those latter questions remain a mystery, but the film does take up the former, delving into the convoluted identity of the real Agent Argyle for an absolutely unbearable two hours and 19 minutes. It's remarkable, really. Argyle has bone deep structural issues on a fundamental level, but it is also a failure of directorial ex- execution from top to bottom. Resulting in what has to be one of the worst, expensive, one of the most expensive, worst movies ever made. It's honestly fascinating. The thing should be studied in a lab. Um, and that person obviously gave it a one star. Uh, the next is Lisa Frankenstein, and says it seems like these days teenage girls only want one thing, and that's a long dead Victorian boyfriend roused from his grave by an ardent wish and a strike of lightning. He's sweet. He's chivalrous his tongue has fallen off so he can't speak. Dreamboat alert! It's a setup that's a little bit Freaky Friday and a little bit Night of the Living Dead, but in Lisa Frankenstein, writer Dubois Cody and director Zelda Williams take Mary Shelley's iconic horror text and juice it up with Heather's inspired dialogue and a romance hero in the mold of Edward Scissorhands. But this spooky-ooky 1980s set romance has a thoroughly modern sensibility and it's about to be the new obsession of quirky teens everywhere. Ah, uh, The taste of things. It starts humbly, a garled turnip emerging from the soil in the early morning light, carrots and lettuce collected and assembled alongside fish and poultry and cream in a large country kitchen. These plants and animals pulled from earth, ready to be transformed with the precise applications of fat and heat. Thus begins train tran ann Hughes, the taste of things which opens with a spectacular sequence of cooking performed by Juliette benoitz betraying a cook named eugene but she's much more than a cook she's the collaborator and companion of dudon bouffant a famed fictional gourmand in eighteen eighty five france called the napoleon of culinary arts though he gets the hefty moniker eugenie is his mutes his sounding board and his inspiration the taste of things is an adaptation of sorts of marcel ruff's 1924 novel the passionate epicure fleshing out the relationship between the gastronome and his cook the film is a celebration of food the kind that achieves a balance between simplicity and decadence but food is just a vessel for the love story and the taste of things one we don't see often enough of a sweet of a sweet love built on respect and companionship, savored sweetly in the autumn of life. Um, And then there's a photo, um, and it's of Lisa Frankenstein, and it shows Lisa Frankenstein and her boyfriend, um, who stars Catherine Newton, who is Lisa Frankenstein, and Cole Sprouse as the boyfriend. So this next story is kind of a little bit of everything, but it's a Valentine's Day special, so of course I have to read it. Um, it's called Sweet Celebration, and it's a by-the-numbers look at the year's most romantic holiday. Um, so first, it goes over America's romantic places, and it's some places in the United States with names suitable for celebrating Valentine's Day. So it ran, ranges from Love Creek, Washington, Love Creek, Oregon, and Love Creek, California. And then there's Love Land, Colorado, Love Lock, Nevada. Loveland Park, Ohio and Love Lake, Minnesota um, and then for candy for what the Rise of Sweetheart purchases is over and heart-shaped boxes of chocolate finish nearly even as the top of Valentine's Day candy and so it looks like Looks like Conversation Hearts as of 2023 are still the top selling candy for Valentine's Day uh, but heart-shaped box of chocolates are almost up there with only a 0.2% difference in who's buying the most. Um, and then it goes over flowers, and it's a rose by any color. And it says Shakespeare's Juliet said a rose by any other name would smell as sweet, but what about its color? Here's what you are really saying with the roses you said this Valentine's Day. So a red rose says I love you. It's about respect and courage. A white rose is silence, humility, innocence, and purity. Yellow roses for friendship and good cheer. And a pink rose is happiness, grace, and grace. Uh, and then an orange rose is enthusiasm and desire. Um, and then the last thing is how much on average will be spent on certain things. So on a significant other slash spouse, it's $101.84. On other family members and children, it's 29.8 cents. Um on like classmates or teachers for those Valentine's Day gifts, it's 12 dollars and two cents On co-workers, it's uh nine and dollars and thirteen cents, and then on pets it's eleven dollars and nine cents. All right, the next thing I'm going to read is this week in history so um on february 13th in 1923 the new york renaissance the first all-black pro basketball team is organized the Reds become one of the dominant basketball team of the 1920s and 1930s on february 13th in 1937 the nfl redskins moved from boston to washington in 1948 dick button uh, the olympic gold medalist Beats Hans Grischilla again to win the men's world figure skating championship in Davos, Switzerland, 1954. Furman's Frank Selly scores 100 points in a 149 to 95 victory over Newberry. Shelley breaks the record of 73 points set by Temple's Bill McVie in 1951 with 40 with 41 field goals in 18. 18- free throws. Um, in February on February 14th, in 1953, Bill Chambers of William and Mary grabs 51 rebounds in a 105 to 84 victory over Virginia. Um, in 2010, the Eastern Conference edges the West 141 to 139 in the a- NBA All-Star game before the largest crowd ever. To watch a basketball game, a crowd of one hundred eight thousand seven hundred thirteen at Cowboys Stadium watches Dwayne, Dwayne Wade score twenty eight points and take MVP honors before Dallas native Chris Bosh makes the winning throws with five with five seconds left. And then on February fifteenth in nineteen seventy eight, Leon Banks wins a 15-round split decision over Muhammad Ali to take the world heavyweight title at Las Vegas. On February 16th, in 1980, American speed skater Eric Hinden wins the 5,000-meter in an Olympic record of time of 7 minutes, 2.29 seconds. It is his second of a record five gold medals won at Lake Placid. And then on February 17th, on in 1955, American golfer Mike Schrauk, Schau, Schonk, sorry, uh sets the 72-hole PGA record of 257 strokes. It is a record that stands until 2001. All right, the next story is called Chocolate May Have Benefits in Moderation, which is perfect for Valentine's Day. Historians credit Richard Cadbury, son of chocolatier John Cadbury, with the invention in the the 1861 of heart-shaped boxes filled with chocolates. The box, after the candy was consumed, was intended to store sentimental love letters or locks of hair, which were common practices in the Victorian era. Of course, chocolate has been around much longer than heart-shaped boxes for Valentine's Day, when first domesticated over 5,000 years ago. In present-day Ecuador, cocoa beans were used to prepare a bitter-tasting beverage that was thought to give strength and sexual prowess to the drinker, according to Wikipedia. In fact, the Latin name for the tree that produces cocoa beans is Caco L., which means food of gods. Time went on, and in 16th century Europe, someone added sugar to chocolate. So here we are. Contrary to popular opinion, Chocolate is not an essential food group. It is, however, reported to be a vital part of rations for U.S. soldiers during wars of the previous century. And when it comes to nutrition, there is some good news for those of us who adore this beloved treat. Cocoa beans, from which chocolate is made, are rich in substances called polyphenols, among other benefits, have antioxidant compounds have been shown in human studies to improve the flow of blood through arteries and assist in keeping blood pressure under control. In general, more polyphenols reside in cocoa powder and baking chocolate followed by dark chocolate, semi-sweet, and milk chocolate. And get this, chocolate has been identified as a polyphenol rich food along with tea and wine. And while I wouldn't necessarily recommend we eat chocolate for its nutrient content, It does contain a fair amount of essential minerals, including magnesium, iron, and zinc. Chocolate varies in in fat content, check the label, but more than half the fat in products high in cocoa is in the form of healthful monosaturated fats and uh, secret acid, a good guy saturated fat that may actually be good for our hearts, according to the USDA Food Data Central. While scientists continue their grueling study of chocolate's attributes, several analyses of this most loved food suggest that, eaten in moderation, chocolate may actually bestow some benefits to our health, according to a 2001 review published in the Journal of Nutrients. How much is moderation? In 2021, researchers reporting in the European Journal of Preventative cardiology calculated the association between chocolate consumption and the risk of heart disease in more than 300,000 people from six prospective studies. Their final tally was that the benefits of nutrients in chocolate appear promising and chocolate consumption at least once a week may be beneficial for the prevention of coronary artery disease. Uh, this was by Barbara, by the way, and there's a photo of Um, with the caption chocolate has been around much longer than heart-shaped boxes for valentine's day and the photo shows one of those heart box of um, assorted chocolates all right the next story is entertainment briefs um it says beyonce announces country themed album beyonce has confirmed plans to release a country themed album and drop two new singles the pop superstar made the announcement about her new music in an ad for Verizon that aired during the Super Bowl on Sunday night in which she attempted to break the internet with stunts including a hologram called Beyonce AI in a film called Before she declared, okay, they ready, drop the new music, I told y'all the renaissance is not over. After the commercial aired, she immediately released two singles, Texas Hollow and 16 Carriages, and confirmed Renaissance Act 2, the second part of her planned renaissance trilogy will land on march 29th the new album is follow-up to 2022's renaissance and will be followed by a third record in the future at the time she released renaissance beyonce revealed she recorded the albums over the course of three years and then there's a photo and it's just beyonce's face and then it says Downey predicts fascically responsible cinema Robert Downey Jr. feels that the success of Oppenheimer could herald a new era for cinema. The 58-year-old actor starred in Christopher Nolan's box office smash as Louis Strauss and believes that it could lead to a new type of blockbuster that keeps budgets under control while maintaining the hype of a major movie. Downey told the New York Times, Fascally Responsible Events Cinema, It almost laughs in the face of what I grew up in. The 80s, bloated big bucket, mold that you go, it doesn't matter because they're still going to, to double their money. Nolan recently said he had always wanted to work with Iron Man before handing him a role in the atomic bomb blockbuster. The tenant, director said, um, Dowling in parentheses, has this incredible generosity of spirit. It means when he's in a scene with other people, he's making sure they are all doing their best, that they are all being able to bring their best to the table. And then there's a photo and it's just of Robert Downey Jr. And that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 14, 2024. The nonpareil can be heard each weekday at 5 p.m. I'm Lainey Errol from Drake University in Des Moines. Thank you for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Have a great day.
1: People's Pharmacy Health Headlines. With half a dozen measles outbreaks currently underway in the U.S., as well as several serious international outbreaks, the news on measles vaccine from Denmark is important. Researchers conducted a nationwide study that included everyone born between 1999 and 2010. With more than 650,000 children in that group, they had more than 5 million person years of follow-up. The Danish health system keeps excellent records on all of its citizens, including the children. Consequently, the scientists are confident that the 6,517 children diagnosed with autism during the study period are all the children who developed this condition. Children who did not receive the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, or MMR, were equally likely, as vaccinated children, to develop autism. The investigators conclude... The study strongly supports that MMR vaccination does not increase the risk for autism, does not trigger autism in susceptible children, and is not associated with clustering of autism cases after vaccination.
2: The Food and Drug Administration has just approved a completely new type of antidepressant. The nasal spray called S-ketamine is expected to help people who have not responded to standard antidepressants. It will be marketed under the brand name Spravato. This drug is chemically related to the injectable anesthetic ketamine that's been on the market since 1970 and is available generically. Although S-ketamine is administered as a nasal spray, people will not be permitted to purchase it for home use. They will need to use Spravato under medical supervision at a clinic or doctor's office. Some experts have challenged the FDA's approval process for esketamine. While two clinical trials demonstrated some benefit, two others did not show that esketamine is better than placebo. Side effects of this novel antidepressant include nausea, dizziness, headache, and a feeling of dissociation.
1: FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb unexpectedly announced his departure from the agency this week. Experts were puzzled by his announcement since he has received high marks from the administration, industry, and even some consumer groups. Dr. Gottlieb has raised questions about teen vaping and has been an outspoken critic of pharmacy chains that sell tobacco products to minors. Some commentators speculate that these stances might be related to his abrupt departure. His explanation for the sudden departure is that he wants to spend more time with his wife and young children. Dr. Gottlieb is a survivor of Hodgkin's lymphoma.
2: Another week, another drug recall. Many lots of ARB blood pressure drugs, including Losartan, Valsartan, and herbisartin, have been recalled over the past eight months. These medicines were contaminated with potential carcinogens known as NDMA and NDEA. Now, Hetero Labs has recalled 87 lots and Tarrant Pharmaceuticals Limited is recalling 100 lots of Losartan tablets. These pills contain an entirely new contaminant just identified as NMBA. It too is a suspected carcinogen. All three of these nitrosamine contaminants are apparently created as a result of the manufacturing process. FDA Commissioner Gottlieb stated, we're making important strides at understanding how these impurities form and we're continuing to examine if nitrosamine impurities may also arise during the manufacture of other ARB drug products. The FDA is committed to implementing measures to prevent the formation of these impurities during drug manufacturing processes in the future.
1: flavonoids may have some benefit for people with multiple sclerosis, according to a small study. Previous research showed that dark chocolate rich in cocoa compounds might improve symptoms of chronic fatigue. The investigators recruited 40 people with relapsing-remitting MS to drink cocoa every day for six weeks. 19 of them got high-flavonoid cocoa, while 21 drank low-flavonoid cocoa. At the end of the study, those on the high-flavonoid cocoa had slightly less fatigue and could walk somewhat farther in six minutes than they had at the outset. They also reported less pain. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week.